Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature extraterrestrials in the pub, portable crime scene investigation and Kiwis in space. But first up, here's the news with Erin Cook. In the news tonight, crustaceans combat climate change, the Kiwis join the space race, and are we about to witness the next sexual revolution? First up tonight, scientists at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute have reported that some crustaceans increase the rate that they build shell when exposed to more acidic seawater. There has been concern that higher levels of dissolved CO2 in the oceans, which raise acidity levels, would be bad news for creatures which build their shells from calcium carbonate. But 7 out of 18 species tested were able to build more shell in response to higher acidity. Meanwhile, New Zealand has celebrated launching its first rocket into space. But the rocket's creator, Mark Rocket, who changed his name by deed poll, is still trying to work out what happened to it. The rocket took off from an isolated island near Auckland and the blast sent sheep running. It then rose 150 kilometres and entered space before plummeting back to Earth. It was last seen bobbing in the ocean by a local fisherman. And finally, a birth control pill for men is a step closer after the discovery of an on-off switch for male fertility. Researchers at the Centre for Reproductive Biology in Edinburgh have discovered how and where androgenic hormones work in the testis to control sperm production. Michelle Welsh, one of the study's authors, said that the work could help advance treatments for both male fertility and a male contraceptive pill. This would give men the type of control over their fertility that women have enjoyed since the 60s. Don't get too excited yet, though. So far, all of the experiments have been conducted on mice. I'm Aaron Cook, and that was Diffusion News. When you have a crime scene and you've got very tiny amounts of evidence left, who are you going to call? You need Dr Alison Beavis in the Department of Chemistry and Forensic Science and the Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. She spoke to me about her research in taking the forensics lab into the field with a mobile crime scene investigation instrument. There's quite a strong push towards the development of portable devices that will allow scientists who investigate crime scenes to actually take the lab to the fields. It's certainly quite a a strong research area, not just at at UTS, but around Australia and the world. So in the last few years, we've been working on portable devices, and one of those projects was the subject of quite a large government grant. Uh, We were funded 
was upward of $400,000 to investigate um, one particular instrument. That so what type of instruments do you have in a portable forensics lab? Well, the, there's quite a few. Most of the major police agencies will have some type of mobile capability and there's quite a range of different instruments that can be incorporated into a mobile lab and it's very much dependent on the organisation. But the instrument that we were working on is um, known as a portable capillary electrophoresis instrument, which we usually shorten to CE, makes it a little bit easier. And, and that's the, the main project we've been working on. So that sort of separates the chemicals out of a liquid, is that right? Absolutely. So it takes a sample which may contain a mixture of different compounds which are of interest and by analysing that particular mixture, the instrument will separate the components out and allow you to identify what is in a, a mixture of um, different compounds. So the, the mixture you're normally looking at, would that be blood? Uh, no. Um, I, my area of interest is in analytical chemistries. The project was specifically looking at explosives, but we're now expanding that into different areas, so uh, looking at illicit drugs, because there's certainly quite a, a large push for the portable instruments to investigate clandestine laboratory scenarios. And um, we've just received another grant. It's, it's been quite a <laughs> successful couple of years. And that's part of a project to look at uh, illicit drug samples. Can you tell me, what do you have to do to detect a sample of explosive or illicit drugs? How small a sample are we talking about? Are we talking about a, a few grains of dust at a crime scene or what do the police give you what do the investigators um, give you it, it can be a mixture of or a, a different sort of size samples yes it, it certainly is in the case of explosives you know really tiny tiny amounts of residue that remain because that's the nature of a lot of the materials that are used as explosives is that they tend to be very efficient and they simply go you know bang and there's not a whole lot left over but the small amount of residue that we would receive it, it certainly you know, it contains enough material for us to detect what it is that we are trying to detect. In the case of perhaps if it was a clandestine laboratory scenario, the samples could be a lot larger. It could actually be an intact, you know, tablet or, or some sort of powder. So it very much varies depending on the, the particular scenario. If somebody's using one of these portable forensic kits on the scene and they get a positive, say, for explosives... What are the chances that it's wrong? Oh, there certainly is, you know, that's a certain possibility. And, and we do evaluate the possibility for false positives, as we refer to them as. as that's very much a, a part of any uh, method development. So uh, when we start by, you know, uh, working on a method, the final step before we, you know, uh, implement that method would be to validate it. And false positives, false negatives and things like that are certainly taken into account and, you know, the potential for either of those situations is, is um, accounted for. And forensics, which is obviously looking, you know, at very small amounts of evidence to get a larger picture, it seems yeah. to me, I believe that's also taking you in other directions? I mean, my training is as um, an analytical chemist. So I, I went to university and my uh, degree was in applied chemistry, but the major was in forensic science. But the, the degree I actually studied at UTS and that particular degree is it's incredibly versatile because not only has it allowed me to pursue uh, method development from a forensic point of view, but I was also involved in a project for my PhD, which looked at developing a method to reduce uh, diagnosis errors in melanoma. So even though it was in that medical science area, 
the, the principles behind the project were still analytical chemistry. So my training, my, my education in that area, yeah, it certainly has. It's, it's taken me off in a few different directions. For those who haven't heard the term before, what is analytical chemistry? Well, it's a branch of chemistry that deals with very simply analysing compounds and, and working out in the case of a mixture what is contained within that mixture and it's it's a cross-disciplinary type of chemistry where uh, often we're providing answers and facilitating you know the, the investigation in another type of science. So in the case of my, my PhD research it was using analytical chemistry to answer a question regarding sort of clinical science or, or medical science. What's the big challenges with forensic science and analytical chemistry? I guess it's always a case of what we say, how low can we go? So thinking about sensitivity. So as sample sizes get smaller and or the amount of material uh, where there's a need to develop methods and, and techniques that can actually detect smaller and smaller amounts. So one of the projects that we're working on with some portable devices, there's been challenges in terms of detecting some of the compounds, but we've been refining the methods such that, you know, we're now able to detect, you know, even smaller and smaller amounts of material. We're, we're talking about, you know, femtogram levels of uh, material, which is, you know, incredibly small amounts. So, so. a femtogram is 10 to the minus what? 15. So wow. it's, yeah, we're talking about very, very small amounts of material. So it's a one millionth of one millionth of the kilo. So very, very small amount. Very small <laughs> yeah. indeed. Can you tell me about your laboratory? So the laboratory uh, that I'm currently working in, we're very, very fortunate to have uh, a wonderful alliance with Agilent Technologies. They're a, a major uh, instrument manufacturer and uh, we actually have a facility, it's called the Elemental Bioimaging Facility, which they uh, sponsor and support, and that was opened up uh, around 18 months ago, and that's been a project. Um, I was initially involved in some of the early work that's led to the formation of this facility, and that's now being led by Professor Philip Doble, who is a colleague uh, that I work with quite closely at UTS. So that's one of the laboratories that I conduct some work in, and the other um, major area is the Centre for Forensic Science, which is led by Professor Claude Roux, another colleague from the department. And he started the Centre for Forensic Science and the facilities that we have uh, in the centre are certainly you know, uh, world class. We have quite a few visitors to the university and they're usually very sort of taken back by what we have available to you know, allow undergraduate students access to these instruments. And I mean, it's, it's certainly very important to have well-equipped laboratories, you know, as a university because we're, you know, educating the undergraduate students. There's no use, you know, showing them a picture and telling them, well, this is how it works. What sort of devices, other than the electrophoresis, which mm -hmm. is interesting in itself yeah. and obviously you can miniaturise it, and mm -hmm. you have some plasma devices? Uh, yeah, we have a, the inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometers. Um, we've actually got three of those now. When I started as a, as a PhD, I was the only uh, research student working on that particular instrument and now we've expanded quite heavily in that into areas that require those instruments. And yeah, there's now three ICPMSs, as we call them. And we also have quite a range of gas chromatographs, which is a very common um, analytical um, device, which you know any laboratory will, will have quite a number of those. One of the big areas that we're more recently getting into is advanced techniques of mass spectrometry. And we have quite a, a number now of very high-end instruments. So these are uh, effectively boxes that sit on a lab bench, but they're worth more than sort of most Sydney apartments, probably around half a million dollars per instrument. And they've been quite heavily used in 
since we've received those instruments for a range of different projects looking into illicit drug analysis. From an environmental chemistry perspective, we've looked at herbicides and pesticides. We've been looking at, yeah, just quite a range of different um, types of compounds. They're very versatile instruments. And the mass spectrometers basically tell you what elements you're looking at by the weight of the atoms? Um, is that Yeah, sort of it's, thing? it's telling you what the compound is and depending on the type of mass spectrometer, it, it will determine the, the amount of information that you can obtain. Some of the uh, instruments will tell you what's known as a, an accurate mass and this is a, a highly accurate measure of uh, a molecule's um, weight and based on that you can work out what the compound is. Others won't provide that, that same level of detail but they'll certainly help in identifying what a compound is. And can you give us some examples of where you've seen your work used? Well, a lot of the the methods that we develop, particularly in forensic science, as an example, each year we have quite a a cohort of honours students and they'll work on projects quite often proposed by our industry partners and that will be perhaps, you know, addressing a a particular issue or, or challenge that they're facing. So... Just yesterday, we had the seminars for the honours projects and one of the students that I was working with, her project was to use one of the instruments that we have, a GCMS, and that was to look at different types of explosives. And the Australian Federal Police offered a project to help improve one of their methods. Their, their methods are, you know, fantastic. They're certainly, you know, one of the leading police agencies, but, you know, there's all, they're always looking to improve what they're doing and um, we... We came on board to to help with that project. So helping to improve projects which then would become, uh, you know, used operationally, that's an area where we we see the the work being applied with the the cancer project that I was working on. So developing the method to reduce diagnosis errors, it's now being applied prospectively. So rather than, you know, working on uh, tissue samples that had been stored for many years to use those to validate the method, we were sent a sample where there was some concern over the the patient's prognosis and uh, we were able to to sort of shed some light and provide some more information to the surgeons and in fact the the information that we provided did change the the way the patient was treated so this particular patient due to the results that we provided was able to be um, randomized into a, a clinical trial where Previously, they wouldn't have been eligible for that. So there's yeah, quite a few applications. So it sounds like um, basically you're helping to save lives both medically and in preventing crime. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> you, could, you could say that. So I'm, I'm helping from, you know, uh, helping in some way, which is nice to know. Alison Beavis, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Alison Beavis and her portable capillary electrophoresis instrument. She studied applied chemistry with a major in forensic science at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she went on to enrol in a PhD project to reduce diagnosis errors in melanomas using analytical chemistry. You can find out more at science.uts.edu.au. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Lachlan Watmore on guitar.
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Secret lair on Skull Crusher Mountain. I hope that you've enjoyed your stay so far. I see you met my assistant Scarface. His appearance is quite disturbing, but I assure you he's harmless enough. He's a sweetheart, calls me master, and he has a way of finding pretty things and bringing them to me. Oh 
is Jonathan Colton with Skullcrusher Mountain. Sit back and have a few beers with Mark West and Darren Osborne and a few extraterrestrials. So I was just wondering, do you think that there is life out there? Absolutely. I've seen a UFO and a lot of people never believed me when I've told them. I only told a few people and they think I'm crazy, but... Yeah, I saw a UFO one night. Freaked the hell out of me. <laughs> so where, where did you encounter this, this uh, UFO and can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, I was living not far from Blacktown. I was doing my HSC and um, lived around the corner from this big lookout. So I just went and had a cigarette break from studying and stuff. And all of a sudden, like, all the lights went out around the town and got really freaky and I looked up in the sky and there was this huge flying saucer with, you know, the lights going around the circumference, just like you see in the movies, you know, it was outrageous. And of course I was a little bit panicky and started running home down the hill around the corner and the UFO was sort of flying through the air. And where I lived, a little flat above the garage, so I sat out on the steps for about 10 minutes and this is where you're gonna think I'm really nuts, is it spat out a baby ship. And um, I'd only wished that I'd had a camera or something on the night. And um, the ship sort of looked like it was flying towards the house. God knows how far away it was, you know. Anyway, I went to bed that night. The radio wasn't working properly. The TV was flickering. The lights were not working. And so I sort of hid under the covers and actually wrote a note to my mother saying, if I'm not here in the morning, I've been abducted by aliens. Because <laughs> I really thought I was a goner. <laughs> anyway, I woke up. It was all right. Nothing happened. There were no green men in my flat. But, um, yeah, true story. And, and what do people say to you? You, you mentioned that people don't believe you. What's, what, how do they react when you tell them the story? Oh, they asked me, you know, if I was on drugs or anything, but I didn't even really know what a lot of stuff was back then. I was pretty innocent as far as that stuff goes, so totally sober. Black coffee, cigarettes, that was it. Yeah, but people just think I was making it up or <laughs> having, a, <laughs> having a joke with them. But no, dead set true. But I'm not sure if anyone else saw it that night. I, they looked up the sky. They couldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> so you're firmly in the yes category to is there alien life out there? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very May the force be with you. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if there's anything out there, but you'd like to hope that we're not the smartest uh, creatures in the universe because um, we don't seem to be doing a, a very good job of managing our own planet, so hopefully someone else can do a better job. Do you believe, do you believe that uh, we've been visited? Do you believe in the idea of UFOs and, and aliens that have come to visit planet Earth? Uh, I think there's too many things uh, that have happened on Earth like uh, that people can't determine, you know, how ancient uh, civilizations could construct things the way they did, pyramids and uh, the Incans. So, yeah, I'd say so. You don't think the world's going to end in 2012 then, like the Incas did? Uh, I don't know. I saw that movie a couple of weeks ago, and um, yeah, it didn't look, it didn't look, um, it didn't look promising. So I hope <laughs> not, because I'll still be alive then. Well, it wasn't a documentary, I don't think. But <laughs> oh, no, well, let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. So do you believe that there's life beyond Earth? Uh, yeah, I probably think that there must be something else existing, but I don't know uh, what kind of form or how intelligent or how active they are in the whole solar system. Uh, what about the thought about UFOs that we've been visited? Do you, do you think that that's all made up or is there a chance that we could be being visited? I think a lot of people would like to believe that, so... I guess that's enough for them. I'm not really, yeah, positive. So you've never seen a UFO yourself? No, no, not, not yet. Not yet. There's time. Do you believe in uh, UFOs and alien life? 
Um, I've never really thought about it, but I guess, well, where did we come from, really? There has to be something else out there before us, and I reckon after us as well, so I'm sure there would be something there. Uh, if you look into the sky and you see a star, it's generally a sun, um, which will have a galaxy around it, and we're too small. You know, we can't even fathom how large the universe is, and, yeah, definitely life out there. What about the uh, the idea of UFOs? That UFOs with aliens have come and visited us. Do you, do you support that idea? Uh, possibly. Um, you know, are we an experiment? You know, was Jesus an alien? I haven't thought of that idea before. <laughs> yeah. And and do you think it's worth? You know, I mean, there there are some uh, who are critical of searches for extraterrestrial life, whether it be you know using radio telescopes, listening out for aliens, or sending spacecraft out to Mars to search for life. I mean, is it a waste of time, or should we continue doing it? Well, it's out there. You've got to have a look. The suns shall never set on setting. We've privatised the effort that was lacking public funds to detect the beings living in the light of distant suns. Though the search may take a lifetime, it is very clearly shown that if we do not pursue it, we will always be alone. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments or suggestions, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West and Aaron Cook. I've produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.